Chapter Eighteen of the Huguenot by George Payne Rainsford James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eighteen. The Hour of Happiness. At the levee of the king on the succeeding morning, the young Count de Mousseau was permitted to appear for a few minutes. The monarch was evidently in haste, having somewhat broken in on his matutinal habits in consequence of the late hour at which he had retired on the night before. "'They tell me you have a favour to ask, Monsieur de Mousset,' said the king. "'I hope it is not a very great one, for I have slept so well, and am in such haste that perhaps I might grant it, whether it were right or wrong.' "'It is merely, sire,' replied the Count, "'to ask your gracious permission to proceed to Paris this morning, in order to visit Mademoiselle de Marly.' not knowing when it may be your royal pleasure to grant me the longer audience which you promised for some future time i did not choose to absent myself from versailles without your majesty's consent louis smiled graciously for no such tokens of deference were lost upon him most assuredly he said you have my full permission and now i think of it bonton he continued turning to one of his valets de chambre "'Bring me that casket that is in the little cabinet below. "'Now I think of it, the number of our ladies last night fell short at the lottery, "'and there was a prize of a pair of diamond earrings left. "'I had intended to have given them to La Belle Clémence, "'but somehow,' he added, with a smile, "'she did not appear in the room. "'Perhaps, however, you know more of that than I do, Monsieur de Morsay. "'Oh, here is Bonton. Give me the casket.' taking out of the small ebony box which was now presented to him a little case containing a very handsome pair of diamond earrings the king placed it in the hands of the young count saying there monsieur de Mousseau, be my messenger to the fair lady give her those jewels from the king and tell her that i hope ere long she will be qualified to draw prizes in some not very distant lottery by appearing as one of the married ladies of our court she has tortured all our gallant gentlemen's hearts too long, and we will not suffer our subjects to be thus ill-treated. Do you stay in Paris all day, Monsieur de Morsay, or do you come here to witness the new opera? I did not propose to do either, sire, replied the Count. I had in fact engaged myself to pass another pleasant evening at the house of Monsieur de Meaux. Indeed, said the King, evidently well pleased. That is all as it should be. I cannot but think, Monsieur de Mousseau, that if you pass many more evenings so well, either you will convert Monsieur de Meaux, which God forbid, or Monsieur de Meaux will convert you, which God grant. The Count bowed gravely, and, as the King turned to speak with someone else who was giving him a part of his dress, the young nobleman took it as a permission to retire, and, mounting his horse, which he had kept ready saddled, he made the best of his way towards the capital. That gay world, with its continual motion, was as animated then as now. Though the abode of the court was at Versailles, yet the distance was too small to make the portion of the population absolutely withdrawn from the metropolis at all important, while all the other great bodies of the kingdom assembled, or were represented there. Thousands on thousands were hurrying through the streets, the same trades and occupations were going on then as now, with only this difference, 
that at that period luxury and industry and every productive art had reached if not its highest at least its most flourishing point and all things presented even down to the aspect of the city itself that hollow splendour that tinselled magnificence that artificial excitement that insecure prosperity the falseness of all and each of which had afterwards to be proved and which entailed a long period of fresh errors bitter repentance and terrible atonement but through the gay crowd the count de mosoy passed on noticing it little if at all he was urged on his way by the strongest of all human impulses by love first ardent pure sincere love all the more deep all the more intense all the more overpowering because he had not felt it at that earlier period while the animal triumphs over the mental in almost all the affections of man his heart and his spirit had lost nothing of their freshness to counterbalance the vigour and the power they had obtained and at the age of seven or eight and twenty he loved with all the vehemence and ardour of a boy while he felt with all the permanence and energy of manhood though contrary perhaps to the rules and etiquettes of french life at that period he took advantage both of the message with which he was charged from the king and the sort of independence which clemence de marly had established for herself to ask for her instead of either the duke or the duchess he was not indeed without a hope that he should find her alone and that hope was realised she had expected him and expected him early and perhaps the good duchess de rouvray herself had fancied that such might be the case and remembering the warm affections of her own days had abstained from presenting herself in the little saloon where clemence de marly had usually established her abode during their residence in paris had albert of mosoy entertained one doubt of the affection of clemence de marly that doubt must have vanished in a moment must have vanished at the look with which she rose to meet him it was all brightness it was all happiness the blood mounted it is true into her cheeks and into her temples her beautiful lips trembled slightly and her breath came fast but the bright and radiant smile was not to be mistaken the sparkling of the eyes spoke what words could not speak and though her tongue for a moment refused its office the smile that played around the lips was eloquent of all that the heart felt not contented with the hand she gave albert of mosoy took the other also and not contented with the thrilling touch of those small hands he threw his arms around her and pressed her to his heart and not contented for love is the greatest of encroachers with that dear embrace he made his lips tell the tale of their own joy to hers and once and again he tasted the happiness that none had ever tasted before and then as if asking pardon for the rashness of his love he pressed another kiss upon her fair hand and leading her back to her seat took his place beside her fearful that he should forget he almost immediately gave her the jewels that the king had sent but what were jewels to clemence de marly at that moment he told her also the message the king had given especially the part which noted her absence from the room where the lottery had been drawn i would not have given those ten minutes she replied eagerly for all the jewels in his crown they then forgot the king the court and everything but each other 
and spent the moments of the next half hour in the joy, in the surpassing joy, of telling and feeling the happiness that each conferred upon the other. Oh, those bright sunny hours of early love, of love in its purity and its truth and its sincerity, of love stripped of all that is evil or low or corrupt and retaining but of earth sufficient to make it harmonize with earthly creatures like ourselves, full of affection, full of eager fire, but affection as unselfish as human nature will admit, and fire derived from heaven itself. How shall ye ever be replaced in after life? What tone shall ever supply the sound of that master chord after its vibrations have once ceased? As the time wore on, however, and Albert of Mosset remembered that there were many things on which it was necessary to speak at once to Clémence de Marly, the slight cloud of care came back upon his brow, and reading the sign of thought in a moment, she herself led the way by saying, "'But we must not forget, dear Albert, there is much to be thought of. We are spending our time in dreaming over our love, when we have to think of many more painful points in our situation.' We have spoken of all that concerns our intercourse with each other, but of your situation at the court I am ignorant, and am not only ignorant of the cause, but astonished to find that when I expected the most disastrous results, you are in high favour with the king, and apparently have all at your command. Not so, dear Clémence, alas, it is not so, replied the Count. The prosperity of my situation is as hollow as a courtier's heart, as fickle as any of the other smiles of fortune. Before he could go on, however, to explain to her the real position in which he stood, Madame de Rouvray entered the room and was delighted at seeing one whom she had always esteemed and loved. She might have remained long, but Clémence, with the manner which she was so much accustomed to assume, half playful, half peremptory, took up the little case of earrings from the table, saying, "'See what the king has sent me?' And now, dear Duchess, you shall go away and leave me to talk with my lover. It is so new a thing for me to have an acknowledged lover, and one, too, that I don't despise, that I have not half tired myself with my new plaything. Am I not a very saucy demoiselle? she added, kissing the Duchess, who was retiring with laughing obedience. But take the diamonds and examine them at your leisure. They will serve to amuse you in the absence of your clémence. "'If I were a lover now,' said the Duchess, smiling, "'I should say something about their not being half as bright as your eyes, Clémence. "'But words vary in their value so much "'that what would be very smart and pleasant from a young man "'is always worthless on the lips of an old woman. "'Let me see you before you go, Count. "'It is not fair that saucy girl should carry you off altogether.' "'Now, now, Albert,' said Clémence, as soon as the Duchess was gone, "'Tell me before we are interrupted again.' "'The Count took up the tale, then, "'with his last day's sojourn in Brittany, "'and went on to detail minutely "'everything that had occurred "'since his arrival in the capital. "'And, as he told her, "'her cheek grew somewhat paler, "'till, in the end, she exclaimed, "'It is all as bad as it can be. "'You will never change your faith, Albert.' "'Could you love me, Clémence?' "'He asked, if I did.' She put her hand before her eyes for a moment, then placed one of them in his and replied, "'I should love you ever, Albert, with a woman's love, unchangeable and fixed, 
but I could not esteem you, as I would fain esteem him that I must love. So thought I, replied the Count, so judged I of my Clémence, and now that all remains to be thought of is, how is this to end, and what is to be our conduct to make the end as happy to ourselves as may be? Alas, replied Clémence, I can answer neither question. The probability is that all must end badly, that your determination not to yield your religion to any inducements must soon be known. For depend upon it, Albert, they will press you on the subject more closely every day, and you are not made to conceal what you feel. The greater the expectations of your conversion have been, the more terrible will be the anger that your adherence to your own faith will produce. And, depend upon it, the Prince de Marciac takes a wrong view of the question, for it matters not whether this affair have passed away or be revived against you. Power never yet wanted a pretext to draw the sword of persecution. Neither, Albert, can my change of faith be long concealed. I cannot insult God by the mockery of faith in things, regarding which my mind was long doubtful, but which I am now well assured and thoroughly convinced are false. In this you are in a better situation than myself, for you can be accused of holding fast to the faith that you have ever professed. Me they will accuse of falling into heresy with my eyes open. Perhaps they will add that I have done so for your love. Then, dear Clémence, he replied, the only path for us is the path of flight, speedy and rapid flight. I have already secured for us competence in another land. Wealth I cannot secure, but competence is surely all that either you or I require. All, all, replied Clémence, poverty with you, Albert, will be enough. But the time and the manner of our flight must be left to you. The distance between Paris and the frontier is so small that we had better effect it now and not wait for any contingency. If you can find means to withdraw yourself from the court, I will find means to join you anywhere within two or three miles' journey of the capital. But write to me the place, the hour, and the time, and, as we love each other, Albert, and by the faith that we both hold, and for which we are both prepared to sacrifice so much, I will not fail you. What if it should be to-morrow? demanded the Count. Clémence gazed at him for a moment with some agitation. "'Even if it should be to-morrow,' she said at length, "'even if it should be to-morrow, I will come. "'But, oh, Albert,' she added, leaning her head upon his shoulder, "'I am weaker, more cowardly, more womanly than I thought. "'I would fain have it a day later. "'I would fain procrastinate even by a day. "'But never mind, never mind, Albert.' Should it be necessary, should you judge it right, should you think it requisite for your safety, let it be to-morrow. I cannot yet judge, replied the Count. I think, I trust, that it will not be so soon. I only put the question to make you aware that such a thing is possible, barely possible. In all probability the King will give me longer time. He cannot suppose that the work of conversion will take place by a miracle, I do not wish to play a double game with them, even in the least, Clémence, nor suffer them to believe that there is a chance even of my changing, when there is none. But still I would fain, for your sake as well as mine, delay a day or two. 
Delays are dangerous, even to an old proverb, said Clémence. But ere she could conclude her sentence, the Duc de Rouvray's entered the room, and not choosing, or perhaps not having spirits at that moment, to act towards him as she had done towards the Duchess, Clémence suffered the conversation to drop, and proceeded with him and her lover to the saloon of Madame. In that saloon there appeared a number of persons, amongst whom were several that the Count de Moseille knew slightly. But the beams of royal favour having fallen upon him with their full light during the night before, all those who had any knowledge of him were of course eager to improve such an acquaintance, and vied with each other in smiles and looks of pleasure on his appearance. Amongst others was the Chevalier de Rohan, whom we have noticed as forming one of the train of suitors who had followed Clémence de Marly to Poitiers. But he was now satisfied, apparently, that not even any fortunate accident could give the bright prize to him, and he merely bowed to her on her entrance, with the air of a worshipper at the shrine of an idol, while he grasped the hand of his successful rival and declared himself delighted to see him. After remaining there for some time longer, lingering in the sunshine of the looks of her he loved, the Count prepared to take his departure, especially as several other persons had been added to the circle, and their society fell as a weight and an encumbrance upon him, when his whole thoughts were of Clemence de Marly. He had taken his leave and reached the door of the apartment, when, starting up with the earrings in her hand, she exclaimed, "'Stay, stay, Monsieur de Mosseux. I forgot to send my thanks to the king. Pray tell him, she added, advancing across the room to speak with the count in a lower tone, pray tell him how grateful I am to his majesty for his kind remembrance. And remember, she said in a voice that could be heard by no one but himself, tomorrow, should it be needful, I am firmer now. Albert of Mosseux dared not speak all that he felt, with the language of the lips, but the eyes of her lover thanked Clémence de Marly sufficiently, and he, on his part, left her with feelings which the bustle in the crowd of the thronged capital struggled with and oppressed. He rode quick then in order to make his way out of the city as fast as possible, but ere he had passed the gate he was overtaken by the Chevalier de Rohan, who came up to his side, saying, "'I am delighted to have overtaken you, my dear Count,' Such a companion on this long, dry, tiresome journey to Versailles is indeed a delight, and I wished also particularly to speak to you regarding a scheme of mine, which I trust may bring me better days. Now the society of the Chevalier de Rohan, though his family was one of the highest in France, and though he held an important place at the court, was neither very agreeable nor very reputable, and the Count therefore replied briefly, I fear that, as I shall stop at several places, it will not be in my power to accompany you, Monsieur le Chevalier, but anything I can do to serve you will give me pleasure. Why, the fact is, replied the Chevalier, that I was very unfortunate last night at play, and wished to ask if you would lend me a small sum till I receive my appointments from the King. If you are kind enough to do so, I doubt not before two days are over to recover all that I have lost, and ten times more, for I discovered the fortunate number last night when it was too late. A faint and melancholy smile came over the Count's face at the picture of human weakness that his companion's words displayed. 
and as the chevalier was somewhat celebrated for borrowing without repaying, he asked what was the sum he required. "'Oh, a hundred louis will be quite enough,' replied the chevalier, not encouraged to ask more by his companion's tone. "'Well, Monsieur de Rohan,' said the Count, "'I have not the sum with me, but I will send it to you on my arrival at Versailles, if that will be time enough.' "'Quite, quite,' replied de Rohan, "'any time before the tables are open.' "'Indeed, indeed, my good friend,' said the Count. "'I wish you would abandon such fatal habits, "'and, satisfied with having lost so much, "'live upon the income you have "'without ruining yourself by trying to make it greater. "'However, I will send the money, "'and do with it what you will.' "'You are a prude, you are a prude,' cried de Rohan, "'putting spurs to his horse. "'But I will tell you something more in your own way "'when we meet again.' End of chapter 18